I love the fucking background, dude. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, Skype lets you throw these in there, so it's not perfect though. When I sometimes when I grab, like it gets glitchy, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> How's it been, man? Uh, last few few days have been pretty rough, actually, for me. Yeah, the last couple of weeks have honestly been pretty fucking rough for me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, things are at least moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, I think I can say the same thing. Yeah, I just had a resurgence of some of some trauma, actually, that I've been dealing with for the past couple of years. But Whoa. Yeah, it's mostly just like, uh, not the actual trauma itself, but just, you know, I've, I think I reached a threshold in my life where my old ways of interfacing with the world aren't working anymore and so, so i've had to kind of deconstruct that to be able to move to the next sort of stage and as you know that's can be a quite an ongoing process so yeah one of the shitty things about becoming aware of our coping behaviors is they don't quite help us cope the way that they used to so we have to feel the thing that we were trying to avoid with the coping <laughs> exactly yep and there's no really clear answer right away about how to you know cope differently or what you're going to end up becoming it's just sort of like well what you what you were is not going to work anymore so good luck <laughs> yeah man if that's something that you want to talk about either on or after the podcast you know i'm an ear that will hear awesome that'd be great sweet well i i fired up the recording already and uh i figured i'd start with the kind of the standard question of like uh what's eric godsey's origin story yeah, so that's a motherfucking question, man. <laughs> uh, the long version would take 29 years to tell you, but I'll try to shorten it a little bit. Um, I'm actually working on an article right now uh, trying to really lay out what I think our dharma, or like what dharma is and what the daemon is. And a part of doing that research is really trying to track what my own hero's journey has been, so really trying to find like what that moment was. Um, and so... I was actually in that headspace earlier today. But the way that I can understand the story that is my life, um, it started with uh, being the firstborn son to two people in love. and um, Or at least, you know, when I was conceived, they were in love. Uh, they got a divorce when I was 10, but that's getting ahead of the story. And kind of the first major feeling I had was, you know, I felt like the golden prince uh, when my mom was not having a depressive episode. And then she would have these depressive episodes where it would just feel like a black hole came and ate the being that loved me the most. And there would be like weekends where she wouldn't leave her room. And there was something in childhood out of that that created this imprint of like, in its shadow expression, uh, I have to save people in order to be worthy of love. And it's light expression, like I'm deeply interested in understanding the human psyche and how it operates and how I can be to help people heal. 
And that eventually, you know, um, an, an interesting side note is when I was like in third grade, I got into reading mythology because these two kids created an Egyptian mythology class and they wouldn't let, or a club, and they wouldn't let anyone else join. <laughs> and in my uh, anger, I was like, well, that's fucked up. I want to start a Greek mythology club. And in order to come to it, you would have to skip out on recess. And so I'd be in the library and no one would show up. But I started to read Greek mythology and I got really into it. Um, and bless my parents, uh, I remember coming home and telling them that I've been reading Greek mythology. And instead of being upset that I was reading about rape and murder and stealing and lying, my dad actually gave me a bunch of Norse mythology books. And he said, these are doper. And I was like, all right. And so I started to read those. And that set a seed that I didn't really understand because puberty came along. And once puberty came along, I didn't give a fuck about books. It was about playing basketball and trying to get my penis touched, you know, to be frank. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was a junior in high school, um, I was pretty good at basketball, but I tore my rotator cuff when I was a junior. And the day that I came home from my first game trying to come back after having torn my rotator cuff and I realized on some level that that dream was dead, uh, my mom was taking a intro to philosophy class at the online university that she got scammed into paying way too much for a degree that doesn't mean anything. Um, I was introduced to my first piece of philosophy, and it was Plato's Cave. And I remember that fucking fascinating me. But I hadn't fully let the dream die of trying to be a basketball player and just being completely obsessed with trying to get women to touch my penis that I ignored it for like three or four more years until... Um, and this was the birth of the first call to my hero's journey. When I was 19, I lived alone. Um, I had my own house because of some shit that happened to my mom uh, where she had to like buy a house when she went to war because the landowner was like, if you don't buy this house, your family has to leave and I don't care if you're at war. It was all fucked up. But anyways, I had my own place. Um, it was in my first year of college. Uh, no one in my family had graduated high school um, they got their GEDs and none of them had gone to an actual university. So I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have anyone around to help. And um, high school was so easy for me that I didn't learn how to study. I just showed up and kind of got B's and that was just the way it was. And my first year of college, I had to actually try for the first time. And my response to trying was to give up. And so by the end of my first year of college, uh, I had dropped out of almost all my classes. My GPA was a 0 0.7. And um, I had started smoking weed that year. And I was, it was like a Friday night. I was home alone on this ugly-ass yellow couch. And I was watching a comedian on Netflix. And his name was Joe Rogan. And I didn't know who Joe Rogan was. I didn't know what a podcast was. But while I was really high, he was telling a joke about, you know, we all think that we're the smart people. But we're the idiots. Like, if the electricity went out, what would you do? You would do what I would do. You would sit on your fucking stool, and you'd be like, these fucking idiots can't get the lights working, and you would wait. What if the smart people all died and nobody turned back on the electricity? What would you do? You would die. You don't know how this microphone works. You don't know how this light bulb works. You don't. We don't know how to do any of this shit. And I had this, like, epiphanal moment where I realized for the first time in my life, I did not know how to do anything useful. My only sense of competence was to put a basketball through a hoop. I couldn't do that anymore. 
and then arguing with my teachers. That was my felt sense of power was I would argue with my teachers and get them distracted from the lesson plan that they had that day. And I just, I fundamentally realized that I was incompetent. And overnight, something in me radically shifted where I began studying, reading, listening to lectures. Like every day, I started getting really deep into philosophy. Without realizing it, I shed almost all of my friendships because my friendships back then were basically people that had the same coping patterns that I had, but we really didn't know how to be intimate with each other. We didn't know how to be vulnerable. We didn't know how to be honest. And that eventually led me to do psychedelics. And my introduction to psychedelics, I do not recommend, but I essentially did mushrooms or LSD or DMT every weekend for like two and a half months. And But I approached it like a scientist. I had read this book called Tai Call, um, which was written by Alexander Shulgin, which was one of the like first people that really scientifically explored psychedelics. And he had this whole rating system and like review system that every time he would do a new psychedelic he would write this trip report afterwards and so i started doing that and that opened me up to a whole new cascade of events and then i eventually graduated uh i I graduated with like a 3.7 gpa i finally turned my shit around um and then with my fancy degree i got a job wrapping burritos at chipotle asking people if they knew that guacamole was extra (laughs) And after like six months of that, I realized, man, if I'm going to live the life that I want, I'm going to have to make it because uh, the degree is not what I thought it was and the job market is not what I thought it was. So I bought the four-hour work week. Um, I'd never even been exposed to the idea of entrepreneurship. Both of my parents were in the military and so the entire construct of what I understood an adult was is an adult took orders. Mm-hmm. And so it, like, it didn't even resonate. I had to read that book three times in order to even wrap my mind around the idea that you could create a business and that you could make your own, like, it was so foreign to me. And then once I finally understood what the fuck that book was trying to say, um, I chose to try to become a habit change coach. One of the things that he talks about in that book is, like, the most effective way to free yourself is to create an online information product. And the way to do that is to become an expert. And the way to become an expert is to buy the five best books ever written on a subject and read them. And if you read those, you will be in the top 10% of people in the world who understand whatever that Mm. thing is. So I did that with Habit Change. The beauty was by becoming an expert at Habit Change, I started to actually change my fucking life in a way that just like set the stage for everything. So I started working out. I started eating right. I started meditating. I got my sleep right. Uh, I learned how to do deep creative work and um, I started a blog. Nobody read it. Uh, My old website is still online. It's called godseysirony.blogspot.com and it's fucking terrible, but it is the root and I will never delete it. Um, And uh, after Chipotle, I finessed a job where I was working at a call center, but I was working like at home in a chat room and I basically finessed it to the point where I would get paid for eight hours of work, but I would do one hour of work. Thank you, Tim Ferriss. <laughs> and I, and so while I was doing that, I was working on this website. Um, I was really trying to hone this coaching practice. And after about 16 months, they realized that I wasn't doing, I, I wasn't submitting to the type of slavery that they wanted, even though my team had the best results of any team and they fired me mm. the day I got fired. Uh, Aubrey Marcus 
released his first online course called Go For Your Win. I had never bought an online course. I was like, I'm not going to pay somebody to tell me how to live my life. Fuck that. Um, but I, ha- I had always resonated anytime I heard him on a podcast. And I was just like, fuck it. Like, I'll try it. And literally, the day I got fired was the day I saw the ad, which is the day that they launched it. And so I joined this course. And I was really active in the community. Like, whenever anyone would ask anything, I would just give whatever I thought was a cool answer. And by the time the course was complete, he had an in-person graduation. And I had kind of made a name for myself because of the way that I was active in the community. Uh, He came up to me at the graduation, and he knew my name, and he said, thank you. And in my mind, I was like, I'm going to fucking get hired at Onnit. And so I applied that day. Um, And I had all these like visions and dreams about getting the job and i felt like absolutely certain that i was going to get it that i moved to austin before i heard and um i got an email one morning and i didn't get the job and i was fucking crushed i had never felt my intuition be so sure about something and so for the next two days i just drank all day and all night and then on the third morning i realized like i I have to do this on my own. And so that was the day that I started my podcast. And for the next year, I'd saved up enough money from the call insurance or from the call center job. And like I I could get away with just eating Chipotle and living in my mom's house. I didn't have a lot of overhead. And so for the next year, I worked on the podcast. I worked on the coaching thing. And at the end of that year, um, I just, on a whim, I applied to Onnit again for this really low-level job, which was essentially like a customer service email job uh, for like Aubrey's personal website. He was still the CEO of Onnit at the time. And uh, the hiring manager posted the job listing right after I applied for it in the Go For Your Win Facebook group where I'd like build my name up. And I was the first person to comment on the post. And I said that I had applied for it and that I wish good luck to everybody else who was going to apply for it. Went to bed, woke up the next morning, went and checked the post. And like 15 people had commented on my comment saying, Eric should get the job. Eric should get the job. Yeah. And so um, like a week later, I get the job. I moved to Austin. I was living at my mom's house because she knew that I was broke, but that I was too prideful to ask for help. So she just said, hey, do you want to come stay for the holidays? And I ended up staying for a couple of months. But so I moved to Austin, started it on it. Um, my first like four or five months there, you know, really didn't have any interaction with Aubrey. I was just answering emails, but the people who sat around me were people that were close to him. And I started like interpreting their dreams and telling them about myths and just being my weird self. And that eventually trickled to him. And they were like, dude, you need to go talk to this guy at, at this fucking desk. And, um, that eventually led to him inviting me on the podcast. And then the first couple of podcasts I did with him ended up being some of the most downloaded podcasts he had done to that point. And he saw that there was something. And then when he started his fit for service mastermind, he was like, you're going to be one of the coaches. And I, it completely like blew my mind. And now two years later, like I just got back from our last event for this year and it blows my fucking brain that I'm in the position that I'm in. Uh, being a coach for this mastermind, having the podcast that I have. Um, I'm now the research writer for the book that he's working on. And through doing the research for this book, 
the stuff that I have found that won't fit into his book. He's like, dude, you've got to talk about this. So I'm going to help you get a book deal after this. And it's just like, my life is this fucking wild. It's more beautiful than I possibly could have imagined it a couple of years ago because of how small I thought I was capable of being. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even. And so I'm super fortunate to have been seen by someone like Aubrey who has the grace to allow someone to ascend around him where he's not this insecure type of leader where he has to keep the people around him down. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm looking out on the horizon of my life of what it could be. And it fucking, it's, it's almost unfathomable. So that's kind of the arc. That's amazing. Um, it makes me think of two questions off the top of my head. One of which is, um, uh, you know, why Aubrey? Like, obviously, it felt like you were pretty, you know, magnetized towards that situation. You know, what was it about what he was saying on podcasts or what on it was mm-hmm. doing that drew you in so he- hardly? <laughs> yeah. So the first podcast I ever heard uh, was when I was twenty, and it was uh, Joe Rogan's podcast with Aubrey Marcus, and it was when Aubrey first got back from having done ayahuasca for mm-hmm. the first time. I don't know what the fuck ayahuasca was. I didn't know what psychedelics were. Um, and hearing Joe Rogan, it was the first podcast I had ever heard and Aubrey talk. It was the first time I had ever been exposed to like the energy, you know, cause I had read books before, but podcast transmits an energy that books can't transmit of men who were doing their own thing. Like I had never been exposed to that ever before. And Aubrey has this beautiful mix of like, masculinity and like poetry and like like he is a man who will cry and he will speak poetry as he's crying and then the next thing after that he's talking about an orgy that he went to and like to the boy in me that was deeply like i want to be that type of man that can hold both and um he was also the only person that i was listening to podcast wise who was kind of within my age range who was talking about the things that I was interested in. And I always had this felt sense of like, I can contribute to the conversation with them. Like I had always had that feeling. And then um, maybe like five years ago, I just Googled like, where is on it? And it was in Austin. And I lived like an hour and a half away from Austin. And I was like, why the fuck am I not trying to like do something here? And uh, so I think that that was the core of it was, he and Rogan were the first men I'd ever been exposed to that were living kind of outside of the ordinary world. And Aubrey just happened to live close to where, you know, just happened Mm -hmm. to live close to where I was. And, you know, I wanted to be around men of that caliber. Yeah. So the other thing that makes me uh, wonder is, you know, on that sort of trajectory towards, I mean, you talked about the disappointment of not getting the job the first time, but, you know, was there... You know, do you feel like there was something, something in you that was just prepared to receive all of that, or did you have to shed a lot of stuff? Um, you know, as you got the position and as you started to be. I mean, for me, like as I've gotten closer to manifesting sort of some of my dreams, it requires this big. All of a sudden, all these dark things start coming yep. up, and yeah, so one hundred percent. I could not have. I could not have shown up to on it the way that I showed up if I had got it the first time. Because the two huge things that happened to me that year, after not getting it the first time, before I got it the second time, was the first one is 
I really connected to the message that Jordan Peterson was sharing of tell the truth no matter what and whatever happens as a consequence of that is the best possible thing that can happen. Like that ingrained in my soul in a way that if I had got the job before, I don't think I could have held the integrity that I've held that has allowed me to become what I am. The other big thing, the massive thing is like six days before or five days before I applied to the job the second time, which was at the very end of the year, I accidentally ate 180 milligrams of THC. I had no idea what the conversion rate of edible marijuana was to like what a smoked amount of marijuana was. And my mom had a medical cookie that I misread the label and I ate like one third of this cookie. And in hindsight, the cookie was like 480 milligrams and I ate like one third of it. And my understanding is about 10 milligrams equates to smoking like a J on your own. And I'm very sensitive to marijuana. I used to smoke it every day in college, but once I did psychedelics, it's like a new layer of sensitivity opened up in me. And where I could smoke an entire blunt to myself when I was 19, taking two hits of a joint, like I'm good, I'm good. And um, I ended up having the hardest experience of my life, period. And I've done a lot of plant medicine and nothing comes close to how hard that experience was. But the aftermath of that experience was a fearlessness in doing the small things in my three-dimensional life that kind of gave me anxiety. And so the, the sole commitment to speak the truth no matter what, period, and this like deep soul lesson of do what you are afraid to do if you are called to do it, period, because none of it can be as terrifying as what you survived. It was those two things that allowed me to show up to on it in a way that has allowed me to become what I am now. Very cool. Yeah, I've had uh, I've had some accidental edible <laughs> marijuana overdoses. They are just the most wicked thing you could ever imagine. Uh, yeah, the find with marijuana that no plant medicine is like is it can hijack your intuition with fear. And so what feels like a revelation of God mm. on marijuana, it seems to be completely in fear, whereas that's never happened on mushrooms or ayahuasca or even LSD, which seems to be a lot more dynamic than mushrooms or ayahuasca. But marijuana, like w the first vision I had was you're actually in a hospital. You've been in a car accident. You're paralyzed and you're too weak to accept the fact that you're paralyzed. So you're in a coma and you're hallucinating this life oh because God. you're weak. And that was the first part of this fucking night and it just got deeper from there. Yeah. Oh my God. That could be a whole podcast episode unto itself, I think, those experiences. Uh, so when I first heard you on Aubrey, you know, you were very uh, mythology centric and Jungian centric and you still talk about those things a lot and I want to get into some of that yeah. a little bit later but I'm really curious as to like how the journey transpired from there towards really heavily getting into trauma stuff now which I think is really exciting like how did that come about what led yeah. you to kind of keying in on trauma yeah, so like my my overall life obsession is to understand how the psyche works. 
period. Like, that's my obsession. And Jung was the first person that I'd ever read that had helped me begin to understand what the fuck the psyche is and what it's doing. And then psychedelics helped me to actually experience what Jung was talking about. And mythology, for me, and I got this from reading Jung, is it's a... All mythologies are stories that symbolically represent aspects of the psyche and how the psyche operates. And it's just, it happens every time I hear a myth. I can, it's almost like I've trained my mind to understand how is that a symbolic representation of some function in the psyche. And so I will be obsessed with myths the rest of my life. Hmm. Um, the thing about trauma is, so I started doing the research for Aubrey's book on mental health this year. And the first huge insight was really becoming clear on how we currently culturally try to solve quote-unquote mental illness is completely broken. And it's based on pharmacology, and essentially it's based on numbing. Um, the story we've been given is that most of these mental disorders are chemical imbalances in the brain, and that the way that you heal that is you take a... a chemical that's supposed to fix the imbalance and then you're quote-unquote healed except you have to take the medicine quote-unquote for the rest of your life and it has side effects where you have to take other medications to deal with the side effects and that your depression doesn't ever actually go away or your anxiety doesn't ever actually go away you just have to take a little bit more and a little bit more doesn't work um and then one of the chapters in the book was to try to understand addiction and as I started to try to understand addiction, where that eventually led me to was this thing called trauma. And I've always heard the word trauma, but I didn't really understand what it was. And I kind of had this insight once I started doing some research where it was like, oh, trauma might, where the pharmacological revolution is the false solution, trauma feels like it's the true source. And once I started to understand trauma, and I started to understand all the symptoms that arise when trauma goes unprocessed. I just had this like, oh, trauma is one of the fundamental things that creates mental illness in our world. And uh, because I want to understand how the psyche operates, it felt like this was a fundamental part. Like this is essentially how the psyche is wounded. And uh, to be traumatized is the psyche not being able to heal that wound. And one of the really interesting things to understand is no wild animal holds trauma. No wild animal becomes traumatized. They go through traumatic experiences, but they don't become traumatized. Only humans and domesticated animals become traumatized. And so there's like one of the fundamental beliefs that I've absorbed through the research that I've done is that the psyche is able to heal anything that happens to it as long as it's still breathing. In, or not anything, but almost anything. It's almost able to adapt to anything unless it's completely killed. And like the example would be like the seed that can break through cement and it will still yawn and grasp and stretch towards the sun no matter what and i feel like our psyche is the same way and then once i started to really get into the research on trauma i realized oh my god this is everywhere 
oh my God, everyone, like this is everywhere. This is in me. And um, it feels like it's one of the fundamental pieces of whatever the thing is that I'm called to like share for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, you know, I started getting into, I never had any interest in trauma to for any reason really and i thought of myself as like i'm a pretty normal person i've had a <laughs> i've had a decent upbringing you know and i think a lot of people feel that way like oh nothing super bad happened to me you know and, and that's one of the things that that i kind of wanted to talk to you about is a lot of trauma you know it, information about trauma focuses on obviously traumatic experiences they're right. undeniably traumatic which is a great place to start because you know that's sort of the triage you know uh reaction of like what if somebody has some ridiculously traumatic experience but what i started to realize the more i got interested in trauma through my own like anxiety and different things that i was experiencing realized that even a parent whose attention was on something else other than you as a very small child or something can be traumatic and that we have these chronic little traumas throughout childhood from a society that's just not able to hold us and love us in the way that we were probably in a hunter-gatherer type of community and so we're all traumatized and uh it's really deep and it's really fundamental to who we are from our birthing process that we have in this country and how insane it is and you know the nuclear family lacking the full community aspect and just on and on various different things so it's like, have you found that through your research as well, that trauma doesn't yeah. have to be a capital T sort of thing, that everybody probably contains some type of trauma right. that could be released and and uh, worked through? Yeah, so that's a great um, insight, and I completely resonate with it and agree with it. And the way that I understand it is, so one way that you can parse your meat suit is that you have a storyteller that's all cognitive and then you have an animal and it and it's the body and capital t trauma is what's referred to as shock trauma and that's where the animal is so completely overwhelmed that it triggers either the freeze response which which is an instinct where you completely freeze in the face of the situation or you're biologically or physically impaired from completing the fight or flight response to the threat. And so that would be like if you're held down during something or you're knocked unconscious or you take anesthesia while you're getting surgery. If any of those things happen while your animal body is trying to fight or flee, that powerful instinct gets locked in the body. Um, and then the freeze response is the last ditch response like instinct that a prey animal has evolved to do when there's no other option in the face of a threat. And because humans can tell stories, if you have a freeze response in the face of something, you will then begin to tell a shame or guilt story about you that keeps you from allowing yourself to fully process the energy that got trapped in the animal body in the face of whatever that experiences. And so those would be like, war traumas or sexual violence traumas or like getting a concussion type trauma or being in a car accident or getting surgery that's shock trauma but there's this other type of trauma that's called developmental trauma and um developmental trauma can be shock trauma that happens in childhood 
with a primary caretaker, but it can also be what one therapist referred to it when I did a podcast with them as micro paper cuts. And the way that he explains it is it's like an animal that is not inhibited. It will express whatever energy is in its body the moment its body feels it, and then it gets it out. Humans, because we're able to learn, any time that you experience an emotion and you inhibit it, its genuine expression, you've just trapped some energy inside of your body. So for men, any time you wanted to cry, any time you wanted help, any time you wanted to be held, and the feedback either explicitly or implicitly from your caretakers is, that's not okay. You just held in some energy that wanted to express, that needs to express. And that can slowly start to grow over 25 years where you didn't incur any acute physical or sexual trauma, but for 20 years, you have never felt it's okay to cry. You have trapped energy in your body that taxes your immune system trying to hold it in. And then you're more likely to get sick. You're more likely to have a bunch of the symptoms of trauma that we have. And then I think there's a third type that I haven't seen in any of the research that I've done, but I call it like cognitive trauma or storytelling trauma. And that's when something happens in your life that the truth of it destroys your life. And you have to recreate the entire story of who you are. And like the classic example would be if you're married to someone for 10 years and then you come home one day and they're gone and they left a note saying that they've been having an affair for five years and they're divorcing you. Your entire story, like you didn't just get attacked by a bear and it's not the result of developmental trauma, but in that moment, your entire life is broken and people will enter into deep depressive states or psychoses that we might call schizophrenia because the weight of that truth is too big to integrate. Hmm. And I think that that's a type of trauma as well. But to your point, it's called developmental trauma. And we all have some of that stored in us. The metaphor that I offered someone today is it's like, you can imagine the energy in your body that's trapped as like a well. And your well, like based off of our biological constitutions, the depth of each of our wells are different. But you start to show traumatic symptoms when your well is so full that it starts to flood. And anytime that you allow yourself to genuinely express a bodily emotion through crying or laughing or skipping or the, the shaking that a lot of people will go through once they learn how to do this trauma work, it's almost like you're taking some water out of the well and throwing it into a garden. And as that, as, as the like, level of the water in the well reduces, you will see a reduction in a bunch of things that Western medicine does not think is connected, but a lot of your symptoms will, will start to come down. But whenever anything happens to you that triggers a true expression from the animal that you inhibit, you add more water to the well. And so it's not something like you do trauma healing and then you never have to do anything ever again and it's healed. But you can reduce the water in the well through doing this work. And then whenever something hard happens, you don't stifle your genuine expression. And that's how you can keep the well from not flooding. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly how I've experienced it personally. And, you know, it, it's interesting, too, because, you you know, a lot of people, I think, can often demonize the parts of them that have sort of held this well back. Um, but when you really think about it or, you know, hear from the right people or look inward enough to kind of see the truth of the matter, it's like these parts have been your greatest heroes, you know? Yes. Like they helped you get to where you are now. Without them, you would have been potentially destroyed, yep. you know? And so they were gifts to you, you know, that have helped you to survive and thrive enough to get where you are. Right. And it's just a matter of them needing to take on different roles or something, you know, to release Amen. the baggage they hold and be sort of given... Uh, freedom to be their true selves or something like that 100 percent, and you're hitting it right on the head um so when you're talking about parts the root of this is a psychological model called internal family systems and it is one of the most helpful psychological models i've ever discovered for helping people understand their own psyche and kind of the root of it is when you're an infant and a young child you have needs that will not be met by the world, almost guaranteed. That's just the nature of existence. And what the child will do, the four-year-old version of you who wasn't met when he wet his bed one night because his mom just didn't wake up and he sat in his own urine for hours and he felt completely abandoned. He is going to create guards, which are basically adaptive modes of behavior to avoid feeling that feeling again. And these guards come up inside of our own psyche and they grow with us and they genuinely believe that they are helping us. But they were created by a five-year-old and they were created by a five-year-old who was lying in his own piss and felt completely abandoned. And he did his best. And a part of the work as an adult is to go connect to that inner boy again, pick him up and like let him know, you are safe. I got you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to raise you. I'm going to show you how to be a man. And the guards can begin to relax. But guards can look like, for me, one of my guards is I have to be a healer. Because if I'm a healer, I am worthy of love. You won't abandon me. And that creates a whole bunch of bullshit. One of my other guards is if you show any sign of not being safe, I will cut you out of my life completely. And again, that is a part of me that was trying to protect from the fact that my mom would sometimes have a depressive episode or my dad left when I was 10 and I felt abandoned. One of my other guards is you have to be the most useful person everywhere you go. So you need to work and get better all the time, no matter what. And if those things go on without awareness, they can also make you sick. But there are these exhausted parts of you that truly believe that they're protecting you. And the way internal family systems frames this is it's like you you have access to the guards, but it's hard to get access to the child because you the reason the guards exist is because you don't want to feel the genuine feelings of the child. And a part of the work through either meditation or journaling or plant medicine, and there are a bunch of other ones, you raise your constitution of holding uncomfortable feelings and allowing them to simply be. And it seems to be that the psyche has this felt sense of as it feels the ego grows and its capability of holding, 
memories start to come back or you get drawn to certain experiences that will quote unquote trigger but whenever you're triggered that's an opportunity to like have more and discover more self-awareness about the guards inside of you and about the child that it's protecting and so internal family systems i have found is one of the most powerful tools to help people not only work on trauma but simply understand their psyche more like there's this great quote from uh, Walt Whitman and it's um I am not singular I contain multitudes and then there's this great quote by Gurdjieff which is essentially man is not singular man is legion mm -hmm. and both of these people were very insightful psychologists in their own right not technically psychologists the first one was a poet and the second one was a mystic but they both understood the truth which is you are not one thing you've got a whole motherfucking party going on inside of you i just wanted to pop in and thank you for listening and give you a couple ways you can help support awake aware alive head over to jacobgossel.com that's j-a-c-o-b-g-o-s-s-e-l.com scroll to the bottom of the page and click the patreon button there you can become a patron of awake aware alive for as little as one buck a month and you'll get extra goodies there's also a PayPal and Venmo button where you can leave a one-time donation. Last way to support the show is by leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes, preferably five stars, and a little blurb about what you think about the show. Lastly, if you don't want to do any of that, please just uh, listen, share it with a friend, share it with a family member, somebody who you think might uh, benefit from this information or think it's interesting. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah. Which can be sort of an intimidating thing to to realize at first, you know, because I think a lot, you know, we can often identify with those guards. Like, we think the guards are us, mm -hmm. you know, but there is some different self underneath that, so to speak, um, like what internal family systems calls the self or what other people call whatever else, the soul or, uh, you know. And it, I like to call it a king or a queen because I feel like... I like that. It 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 implies the right way to show up like the thing about the capital s self because young would use that too yep. is that most people can't intuitively grasp what that means but like all of us have an intuitive understanding of what like a good king is or a good queen you know especially because most of us are the descendants of like western culture that like that intuitively makes sense and the way that i see it is it's like fundamentally there's just awareness and awareness is the is the fundamental thing that we are and that's the witness or the watcher that's the part of us that's never been afraid it's never been hurt it has survived everything that we've ever gone through it is invincible as long as we are breathing but then the next one right above that i see it as like it's the king and the king is the one that is responsible for bringing order to the psyche and the king has the capability to do so. And I see, like, in my own internal world, I see it as a throne room. And whoever is on the seat is the part of me that is acting through my body. And I want the king to be on the seat as long as possible. But one of the archetypical functions of the king is that he hears and he listens to the problems of his kingdom. And he will actually allow these parts to come forward and voice whatever it is that they believe is true. And then he tries to find some way through the middle that honors that part, but then also acts out whatever is for the best for the kingdom. Mm. 
that brings up an interesting thought for me and question for what you think about this is um you know that's like an extremely powerful narrative um and in people can come up with their own narratives about you know how to visualize these things um and then you have something like somatic experiencing which i know you've researched and talked about which is like almost purely the physical release of trauma and is based on this animal sort of bodily reset after a traumatic event. You know, how do these things intertwine and is it necessary to form a narrative or how helpful can it be to form a narrative, especially with like the more chronic developmental type trauma? Like, can you have one without the other? Do you need both? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, right. This is a great question, and I can tell that you really understand this subject because this is the first time I've, I've had someone ask that question, and I, I can see the importance in it. And the thing that comes up in me is um, my, my authentic nature is highly motherfucking dramatic and highly imagistic, and so it serves me to have this really big like internal visualization of all these things but really, all of all all this is is representations of energies in the body, and so my intuition is actually if you want, if you know that you have trauma, and when you go look at the list of symptoms, you're like, oh my god, that's me. Somatic experiencing, I believe, is more important than the parts work that I'm articulating. But the part work, because most Western people are so in their motherfucking brain. It can serve as a bridge to the more esoteric feeling thing of just pure body sensations. And I find that they complement each other incredibly. Um, but yeah, the somatic, the, the, you do not need to understand a narrative to process trauma. But the thing that I have found through the research is that it seems to be like if you simply want to clear and get rid of the symptoms, you can just do somatic experiencing. But if you want your experience to become medicine for other people, you have to learn how to tell it as a story or to express it through art. Because there's some really great research that shows that if something has happened to you that you don't share out of shame or guilt or fear, it can create the same type of, sim- of symptoms that trauma can create. And the core of it is that any, both trauma and holding on to secrets, they can chronically activate our stress response, which can chronically diminish our immune system, which is one of the major biological pathways that most of these symptoms will manifest in the body. And so it seems to me that like the ultimate arc of trauma healing is, you know, first you process the biological trapped energy, but then you share it as a story. To help other people. Hmm. That's great. So, uh, something that ju- I just thought of as you're talking is, like, when you start getting into this stuff enough, and you realize, like, for myself, I've had, you know, symptoms of, like, gastrointestinal stuff, and anxiety, and all these things that could seem kind of, like, can really feel diff- like different disconnected things that this could have to do with this thing I'm eating and this could have to do with this. And um, and then when you have a crescendo of some type of emotional release, all of a sudden <laughs> they can all just be gone. Yep. And it's like, huh, isn't that interesting? And the more I've thought about it, the more I've come to feel like 
God, I feel like there's almost nothing that can't be explained by trauma besides like, you know, I fell and broke my arm, but like any type of chronic reoccurring thing. So when I start to think about, I know supplements can be helpful and these different, you know, methodologies of self-improvement can be helpful. But when it comes down to it, it, it just kind of feels like if you're not addressing the root cause, which usually ends up being some type of trauma, then ultimately these things are going to continue to to recur in your life. Do you see that? 100% could not resonate with more. And the key word here is chronic. So any chronic condition, either biological or psychological, you know, like breaking your arm is an acute, yeah. quote unquote, trauma. And um, But anything that's chronic, uh, I think that you're completely right. And it's why chronic conditions are the ones that Western medicine seems so inept at solving. But we're the greatest in history, in recorded history, at treating the acute injuries. Yeah. Like if I break my arm, I want to be in a Western hospital because they're going to fucking crush it. Um, but if I have a chronic condition, j- just look at the illness in our culture. What we are currently doing is not working. Mm. Now, the like, the question is essentially, is there anything that I know I'm avoiding feeling in me. If there is something that you know is there that you are avoiding feeling, it's going to trigger, it's going to require energy from your psyche to keep it out of your awareness. And the more energy it requires to repress, it seems to be to the same degree, it triggers your chronic stress response. And it's our chronic stress response that seems to be the biological marker that is the thing that's producing almost all of our chronic illnesses. And so you can take the supplements, you can read the books, but if you haven't wept in 10 years, Hmm. it's probably not going to work. And if you can do some type of experience that allows you to feel safe enough to weep you are very likely going to experience a improvement in any of your chronic conditions to a degree that you haven't seen from doing anything that Western medicine has given you. And it's one of like my growth process as a coach for fit for service is continually learning how powerful experiential practices are and how they're so much more powerful than a lecture. Like, I could give the greatest possible lecture, and then I could put you through a half an hour of breath work where I guide you through your imagination down into a cave, and there's a door, and I tell you to open the door, and inside of it is someone that wants to meet you. It's your inner child. What does he have to say to you? As you're doing the breath work, and you hear a hundred people around you breathing at the same time, and then he has something to tell you. What do you say to him? Do you pick him up? Do you hold like that is probably going to produce an Instant effect in crying your- everywhere. <laughs> and like one of the things that's really powerful to connect to, man, is the fact that we laugh, the fact that we cry is evidence to me that we are that there is divinity inside of us. No other animals weep. Mm. No other animals understand the depth of a poetic line that reminds you that you're going to die. And it's like, 
I'm at the point now because of the work that I've done where I love crying, even if it's painful. There's this part of me, there's this part behind my ego that's crying that's like, good job. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of you. Like, what you are doing right now is healing. And I, I did combo a couple of weeks ago, which is a type of, um, it's, it's a secretion of a toad mm-hmm. that creates a, it basically is poison in the body and it creates a very powerful immunolo- immunological response to it that causes you to purge. And for the first time in my life, I had a full body traumatic release. And what a trauma release looks like is it's like, it feels like you're seizuring. It feels like you're having a seizure. And the people around me thought that I was cold. But because of the research I had done, they asked me if I wanted a blanket, and I said no. And for like 20 minutes, I just allowed myself to Mm. tremble. And it was a full body thing. And just like when I cried, there was this part behind me that was like, oh my God, this is happening. I am releasing something that's been in my body since God knows how long. There were no visions, there was no story, I didn't reclaim any repressed memories. That's not important. What was important is that my body felt safe enough to tremble and I let it tremble. And like, once you know that this is how the body releases some of the water in the well, um, you don't stop it. Because my instinct would have been two years ago, if this was happening in front of people that I respected, I would have tried to stop it. I, I would have clenched my fucking muscles I would have tried to do anything that I could to keep it from happening, and I would have kept that energy trapped in my body. Yeah, and you probably, yeah, you would have succeeded because that's one thing I've noticed is like we are insanely good at repressing our emotions and our energetic releases. You know, like I've been doing a lot of practice with crying, and it's definitely getting easier, and there is starting to be a part of me that's like, you know, the cheer you on kind of part, but it's still hard for me sometimes. Like, it's still scary. There, There's a depth that I get to where I feel like I need to turn back at times, you know? And uh, something you mentioned there was that your body felt safe enough to do that release. And that's one thing I'm curious about is, um, you know, like one thing I've thought about in my own journey towards healing and, and also for others that I know that, um, you know, are either interested or I, I think might uh, you know, at some point become interested. It's like, you know, I can understand, like I, if I could work with Peter Levine for a month (laughs) or two, I feel like I would just be so ready to do that. But when you're on your own and you are maybe don't have a lot of money and you can't find a good therapist and you're in a home situation, that's not super supportive and safe, or you're not comfortable, you know, you know showing your exile around your partner or whatever it is like you you know it's like how do we help people get to the point where they do feel safe enough to go to these places where they can convulse for an hour or when they you know what i mean like 100 percent. because some of these places are so terrifying and i think a lot of people you know i think there are a lot of people that know they want to heal and need to heal and they just resist it because they don't feel like they have a safe space to do it or really don't just know how to approach it, you know? Right. So great question. And there's a couple of ways to approach this and I'm going to go to the most dramatic place. And it's that, um, you, it's not your fault 
that the things that have happened to you have happened to you, but it's absolutely your responsibility to show up to yourself and to cultivate how powerful you actually are by releasing the stories that have been put on you that you aren't a fucking king or queen to your internal world. And I didn't feel safe because they gave me permission to feel safe. I felt safe because of the work that I've done inside of my own body. And so the invitation is you create the safe space inside of you by honing your, like, what's the right word? By honing your relationship to yourself. And so what that means is like, you know, I was broke most of my life. I've, I've only really come into money like the last year, but I've been doing quote unquote the work since I was 19. And like, you don't need any money to start journaling. And you can begin a journaling practice where you just begin to be completely honest with yourself. And I have an article on my website that people can go read called um, the, if you just type in Eric Gotze journaling, there's a bunch of articles, but there's a type of journaling practice called the daily pages that I got from Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, that transformed my life. And most people journal with this implicit belief, like this is going to be read by history in a hundred years. So I have to say really profound things and I can't divulge too much bullshit. The way that she teaches you how to journal is you write stream of consciousness for either three full pages or for 20 minutes. If you're typing, you will never reread it. No one will ever get to see it. And all you do is just spew whatever the fuck is on your mind. And if you've tried to meditate, you will learn very quickly, you are never not thinking about something. And so if you sit down and you, st and you start a timer and you don't judge yourself, just vomit, whatever is happening. And as you do that for a couple of days and you trust yourself that you'll never reread it, like I, I throw away my journals after I'm done with them and my friends in my life are like, no, we need those journals. But like, it's because most of what I've written is fucking utter just bullshit. It's just my brain doing what my brain is doing but it was the first time in my life where i gave myself a space where i could be honest with mm -hmm. myself and so journaling is free you can begin that today the other one is meditation meditation is free and you don't need to look into all these different types look up how to do vipassana meditation and you can get the Waking Up app by Sam Harris, and if you email his support team and say that you can't afford it, he'll give it to you for free. Mm. And it teaches you Vipassana. And Vipassana is essentially, you sit down with the intention of keeping your awareness on one point, which is normally the breath, and whenever your awareness moves away from it, which I've been doing it for years, and it still moves away in three fucking seconds, <laughs> you non-judgmentally bring it back to your breath, and that starts to cultivate this felt sense of you have the ability, if you wanted to hone it, about where your mind goes. And the combination of journaling and meditation start to build up this safe space inside of you. And then you can go watch a free video on YouTube that is taught by Peter Levine, where he teaches you the basics of what's called the felt sense. And you can practice this in the shower every day for free. And what it is, is it's essentially learning how to feel the raw sensations in your body. And one of the techniques he offers is when you're taking a shower, get it to be slightly above warm. 
and then direct it onto each part of your body. Start with your feet and feel just the raw sensation of the water on your feet and say out loud, this is my foot, I welcome it home. And you move to every part of your body and you will very likely find parts of your body that you can't feel. Just make a note, oh, I can't feel my lower right back. Interesting, keep the water there and just continue to say, this is my low right back, I welcome you home. And you can do that every day and that starts to cultivate the felt sense. And the other thing that I would offer, this is much harder and I wanna create a course over this to help people teach or to help teach people this, but once you learn how to understand your dreams, your dreams are the most powerful therapist that you will ever have because it will expose you to all of your shit. You will never be able to run from it because the part of you that dreams is watching your life with you every single moment. You can't lie to it. You can't deceive it. It will talk to you and it is guiding you. And like those four practices are free. And if you start to connect to those, it's going to be really hard not to feel safe in your own body. And like, I will have, like, I have small trauma releases, like, in my car. Like, when I went and saw my ex-partner, like, if we would have great sex when I was driving home, I would feel the muscles that connect to my, like, pelvis, the ones that seize when you orgasm, starting to tremor. Mm. And because I had done this research, I didn't need permission from anyone around me. I felt safe because I knew that it was okay and it would come out and, you know, anyone listening could listen to my podcast what is trauma and you know it's free and there are tools and resources and so the the kind of stern fatherly truth is um, not having money is not an, an excuse not having community is not an excuse it's easier with money and it's easier with a community but it's not impossible and you're responsible for doing what you can with where you're at with what you have yeah i i think that's great i mean and if you start on the journey uh you know and you hold the intention of of wanting community and wanting extra resources to help you then hopefully you'll be lucky enough that those will find you you know there's something else going on in the universe it's not just a materialistic cause and effect um try to not find mentors and allies and miracles when you truly commit to whatever your path is yeah um so i want to ask you about you know mythology connecting with trauma but before i do that real quick i wanted to ask you um what was it that i thought of while you're talking it was um okay so like i've had a little bit of uh the physical trauma releases too specifically in my neck one night i just sort of was like kind of getting my almost like when you're trying to remember a word i was letting my body do that like just kind of maybe i could let it shake a little bit and then all of a sudden something really happened and it just my neck was like doing this crazy thing and it was hot and it just felt like ecstatic like this that's incredible you know like uh but it didn't last too long and i know there's more that needs to come out but it's i'm not you know it's still a little bit hmm I haven't quite created quite the full-on safe enough container, I think, where I'm really going deep with it. But um, but my question is, so I, I understand that that is an important aspect to releasing trauma, but I wonder about another thing is, uh, you know, if you have the awareness enough to be triggered by things in your life and to react or respond, rather, instead of react, 
is that also a form of healing different sort of traumatic, um, you know, neural pathways, so to speak? So, like, instead of getting pissed when, you know, my girlfriend moves my shoes or something, I don't know why I picked <laughs> this. Is not a real, that's not a real analogy. But... <laughs> I say, oh, oh, that's fine. My shoes are over here, you know, and I might feel some adrenaline or something, but I understand that that's just an old, weird loop, and I can sort of disobey it or act right. in sovereignty to that. Is that also a form of sort of the reprogramming or integration aspect of trauma healing? That's a great question. Um, the metaphor that comes up is it would be like, uh, the degree of unreleased trauma you have in your body is like the degree that the wheel of your car is not in alignment with the steering wheel. And so it doesn't respond intuitively the way that you want it to, to the degree that it does. And through effort and awareness, you can learn how much you have to overcorrect mm. to avoid something in the road because of the amount of trauma that 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 is causing the misalignment yeah and so it seems that it doesn't release trauma but regardless of the amount of trauma you have in you you still have the potential agency to learn how to react to it but then also by releasing trauma the alignment starts to get more and more in tuned and so it gives you a greater sense of agency to respond rather than react and so that resonates with me because some people's alignment is so off that they don't feel like they have any motherfucking will. And you might be able to make the argument that they don't. Yeah. And they have to do a certain amount of work to even bring it within a space where it's still not aligned, but it's closer enough where they can begin to make other choices. But now here's a really interesting thing that I don't know is true, but this is kind of where my intuition is going, is that your reactions as, as opposed to your respondings um, they are a way to let off some of the steam of the well. And that if you learn how to not react, but you can, you choose to respond, that steam doesn't get to come off. And so maybe that increases the chances of you actually having releases because you're not allowing it to come out in unhealthy yes, ways. Yes, yes. I think that's true. <laughs> From my own experience, I think that's true. I think the same could be said for like uh, vices, you know. 100%. Like if people quit drinking, that's one way that they allow themselves to just open a little bit of that valve to let off some of that steam. And so, 100%. Yeah. I have a friend who um, tried to write a book two years ago and hasn't been able to finish the book. And her vices are drinking and partying. And she's recently, like COVID has actually forced her to kind of let her foot off of the gas of that vice a little bit. And rather than creating the space for her to write, it's created the space for her to process a bunch of fucking repressed trauma. Yeah. And she still hasn't got to the point where she can write, but so much healing has happened because the vice removed that like toxic out, like outpouring of the steam from the well. And so I think that you and I might be armchairing onto something that is actually true. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, what I was kind of, I think, alluding to with the reaction response thing, I think of it like you're talking about the car and the misalignment. So what if also that car is on, say, a dirt track 
that has certain tracks worn in it, which would be like the neural pathways. Like, do you believe that even after an emotional release, you can still have maybe a tendency to feel or think a certain way just because, I mean, even though the energy's gone, you've worn these neural pathways through years and years of sort of developing something that, you know, that, that, that the responding versus reacting thing or building your awareness to be able to choose your response. I agree with what you said. It That does sound accurate that you're sort of just overriding. You're not actually releasing any trauma, but it can be also part of maybe the healing and it is doing some type of reconfiguration by... 100%. You're not necessarily just like, you know, muscling your way past it if you're also having releases and doing the other healing work, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. On a biological level, as far as we understand the brain right now, and again, the brain is the most complex thing in the known universe, and our understanding of it, if we're humble, is very low. But yeah. based off of what we understand right now is um, you don't, like, whatever pathway you choose to act on or to move down gets reinforced. And each time that you don't choose it, it slightly becomes less reinforced. But if it's something, if it's a pattern that you've had for 20 years, you're very likely never going to delete it out of your brain, but you can slowly create a new groove that you choose over and over and over and over again. And each time you choose, it becomes easier and easier to pick that one. My understanding of how this works because of the research that I've done in habit change is you never delete a bad habit per se, Mm. but you can replace it with a new behavior. And so the trigger and the reward stay the same, but the behavior you do in response to the trigger to seek the reward can be better and healthier. The one caveat to this is things like a boga. Are you familiar with a boga? I know about it. I've never experienced it, but... So I haven't done it yet either, but the research on it is that it's incredibly powerful healing for people with addictions. Mm-hmm. And the understanding is that like, it almost like burns the addictive pathway in a way where if you imagine like you drive the same way down a dirt road, it almost replaces completely the grooves in the road where it's almost a completely clear road. Yeah. And it becomes tremendously easier to choose a new pathway. And I do agree with you that every time you choose a response that is not the same as a reaction that you had in the past, you are slowly creating this new pathway. And it feels like when you have a somatic release, you're almost doing the same thing a boga is doing, where you're like adding some dirt to the old groove that makes it slightly more shallow, Mm. that makes the effortlessness of falling into it less enticing Mm. yeah so this might be a bigger one and this is you know kind of towards the end here anyways so uh i I don't you know i don't you have a you wrote uh, you had a great podcast the what is is it what is trauma yeah that you're reading something you wrote and you get into the story of medusa and how that (laughs) describes trauma and i thought it was fantastic and i don't want you to to go through that whole thing on here obviously that's long and and i just want you to give people a teaser and maybe that that will you know entice them to go and listen to your podcast or read your your uh, article but uh before i 
before you dive into that, if you have sort of a shorter version you could give, I wanted to ask you, um, just out of my own curiosity, if you're, if you have heard of David Matheson. I have not heard of David Matheson, but the way you just said his name makes me feel like it's about to be an awesome rabbit hole. So I think you'll really dig him um, because he's like super obsessed with mythology. And he his whole bit is that he believes that all of mythology is talking about the stars, so constellations. And he goes through all of these old paintings and artwork to kind of show this because they all painted them in certain configurations that match with constellations. And the crazy twist to it is he also believes that all of the myths from, you know, Greek mythology to Indian mythology to all the Bible, they're all ultimately describing like a healing journey from trauma and the recovery of the true self or the authentic self. Interesting. And so he's really into IFS and Gabor Mate and Peter Levine and all these guys. And uh, so it just sounds like it's right up your alley. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had him on my podcast recently, and he's also been on some other folks' podcasts. So I th- he just put out a book called um, Myths and Trauma or something. Whoa, I got to yeah. check that the fuck out. Yeah, dude. So I was wow. like, I got to tell Godzi about this guy. If I was curious if you'd ever heard of him. So... That's sort of a little side <laughs> side yeah. road there. But if you could give some sort of rundown about, you know, how mythology describes trauma, specifically maybe that Medusa story, just to kind of wet people's whistle with that. I don't know. For sure. So the interesting thing that comes up, man, is my understanding of the stars is that they're the same thing as mythology and that they're also a place where we project the psyche mm. to understand ourselves symbolically. And so it's interesting that he understands that enough, but that he believes that the stars are the ultimate thing, whereas, and, but that the stars are a reflection of humans healing trauma, which I feel like would come back to the root where it's the root is the psyche. Mm. And in the same way that we use you know, the earth and all of its inhabitants as a place to project aspects of ourselves onto to help us understand ourselves, we do the same thing with the stars. But I got to check it out. Any yeah. book name myth and trauma is right up my alley but so the really interesting thing about the medusa about the medusa myth is that the way it's originally told i think is a reflection of why we have so much trauma and i retold it in a way that felt more true at the end of my article and the original story of medusa is essentially there's this priestess of the temple athena who gets raped by poseidon a Athena punishes her for being raped and turns her into this monster. And the snakes writhe on her head. And if she makes eye contact with you, it turns you to stone, which is the freeze response, which is the thing that causes trauma biologically. And I think that that's the root of that myth that is most in alignment with trauma. And then this hero, Perseus, comes and kills her. And once he beheads her, out of her head sprouts a winged horse, Pegasus. And then this golden knight with a golden sword named Chrysor. And then uh, Perseus takes Pegasus and Medusa's head and goes and does other quests. And that's the end. I think that's fucked. And I don't think that that, I don't think that that's honoring of the feminine. I think it's a reflection of, you know, a word that's highly contentious, the patriarchy. But I do think it's a reflection of the male-dominated understanding and the people in power. And I don't think it's fair or right, to be completely honest. 
And so I kind of retold it in a way where the heroine is actually Medusa Hmm. and that Perseus is a part of her psyche and that everything that happens in that story is her path to healing trauma. But the essential points are trauma from one perspective is a sacred wound. She was wounded by a god in the house of a goddess. And at first, the trauma feels like a curse. She's turned into a monster, and the goddess Athena feels like this cruel monster. And what trauma does is it makes you, it creates a bunch of guards, which would be the snakes. It's all the reactions that are trying to protect from you feeling the grief of the sacred wound. And then the fundamental aspect of what is traumatizing for humans is that we freeze in the face of the trauma. And that's the Gorgon's eyes. That's Medusa's eyes. Perseus, to me, feels like it represents the heroic call to face your trauma. And when Perseus um, chooses to go face Medusa, Athena comes to him and gives him wisdom, gives him the shield, and gives him the sword. And the key with the shield is that if you don't look directly at Medusa, but you look through the shield, you won't be paralyzed. And I think that that's Peter Levine's felt sense, is that if you don't try to look directly at the memory, but you allow yourself to feel what is happening in your body now, you don't re-traumatize yourself. And so I think that that's one of the key parts of the myth that absolutely makes sense. And then when Perseus slays the monster... Out of the monster comes a winged horse. Horses are one of the oldest symbols that we have that represents the vitality of the body. A winged horse is the pure liberation of the animal. And if you can liberate your felt sense, you can feel your body, and you reclaim the power of your body, that is one of the things that comes when you heal trauma. The other one is a knight with a sword. Swords are one of the oldest symbols that we have for articulated truth. And when you look at your trauma fully and you process the sensations in your body, it gives you the opportunity to tell the story. And so I think that's why Medusa's myth is the is the myth for understanding how to heal trauma. Super interesting because I actually recently just watched uh, <laughs> the movie Percy Jackson. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and that's just kind of funny that this happened to come up. It's kind of an interesting synchronicity because Percy Jackson has all sorts of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do justice to any of this stuff, but it, yeah, it's got some of it in there. Um, Do you think uh, does the healing journey ever end? You know, like do we ever completely extinguish that well and can allow the new experiences to just flow freely through and and not refill this? this big well of you know yeah, suppressed I things th- i think it's so i would offer a different perspective it's not about is the healing ever done it's have you do you get to a place where you have the courage to artistically express the human experience as it happens to you for other people and i think that so i've been rereading all of stephen pressfield's like non-fiction books lately are you familiar with who that is yep war of art exactly yep and one of the main things that he talks about in the book the hero or the artist's journey is that all of us have one hero's journey and then the rest of our life are new cycles of artist's journey 
And what he means by that is your first journey is essentially going through whatever journey you have to go through to find what is your medicine that you will give other people. And that's essentially your art. What is your art form? Like for you, it's podcasting. And I'm sure that you have other things that you do that allow you to express yourself. The fact is that the human experience will create suffering. It will bring to you trauma. Mm -hmm. But the ultimate alchemy of humans, the godly part of us, is that we can create. The only other things that can create are mothers and gods, is a quote that Pressfield has in one of his books. And it's so good. That's great. And so the hero's journey is about claiming what is your authentic call of expression? What is your craft, your art? And then once you have that, let life happen to you and make art from it. And I think that that's the ultimate alchemy. That's the ultimate expression. And so the question is, can you get to a part in your quote-unquote healing where instead of alcoholism or workaholism or being in dramatic relationships that keep you from doing the things that you know you want to do, that you find what your art is. And so when your dad dies one day, can you write a poem or can you create a song or can you create or paint a painting to alchemize the true depth of the feeling of that experience. When your partner leaves you, or when your child gets sick, can you make art? Because the fact of the human experience is that it's going to whoop your fucking ass. But the thing that we can do that is akin to God's is we can create art. Beautiful, man. Um, I guess lastly, it would just be like, uh, you know, where do you suggest people go to find more about you and keep up with what you're doing and, um, and uh, you know, go down the, the trauma and the Eric Godsey rabbit hole? And also just mm-hmm. like, you said you were writing a book, but, how, you know, how are you looking to incorporate all of this newfound knowledge about trauma and stuff like into your, because I know you, you seem very interested in experiential type stuff versus just only writing you know like how are you looking to incorporate this stuff into like <laughs> your your quest to help humanity yeah. heal oh that's a big question so i'll answer <laughs> the small part first um the best places that you can go to like go down the rabbit hole of what it is that i'm doing is i have a podcast called the myths that make us uh, i have a website ericgodsey.com um, i have a newsletter that you can sign up for where i just share whatever's going on every friday um, I have a journaling course that you can find on the website that is it, it changed my life and um, I would highly recommend that. And Instagram is probably where I'm the most active and it's Eric Gotzi, but I'm currently not going to be on it for like a month uh, because I'm preparing for ayahuasca. Um, but to answer your question, man, um, I'm going to spend my life like I know what my calling is, I know what my art is, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life making art that is essentially going to try to say the same thing, and it's that um, you have the ability to heal almost anything that happens to you, and that you have a thing inside of you that is guiding you if you learn how to listen to it, and that everyone has a dharma, a sacred calling in life, and that if you learn how to answer that call, it will take care of most of the ailments that beset most people in western culture that we call mental or chronic illness and the book that i'm working on so i'm doing research writing for aubrey's book Mm -hmm. and that's basically just making sure that anything that he claims is backed up by science Mm -hmm. but the book that i'm going to write after that is i'm going to try to tell the story of the current god 
of mental health and how it's broken. Mm. And then I'm going to try to tell the story of the goddess that I feel is going to be the revolution in what's happening in mental health. And I have a very vague sense of like a medicine wheel that I'm trying to create that I would like to see replace the DSM and just trying to cultivate like what that looks like, how people can put it into their lives. And one of the core things of that medicine wheel will be how to heal trauma. That sounds awesome, man. Uh, well, thanks so much, dude. This has been great. I'm going to have all your links and shit in the, in the bio and all of that. So yeah, I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing. Um, I just, I feel like we need more people sort of like taking this holistic approach to trauma and compiling what all these great minds have done. A lot of these people are only recognized in like the therapy, therapy world, you know, and for people like us, podcasters and, and people in the general sort of like conscious community to start bringing in these concepts from somatic experiencing and internal family systems and all these things, I feel like, uh, is going to be really important. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm just pumped about what you're doing. Thank you, brother. I will not stop. I'll do it until I don't breathe.